The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, do you think that we're seeing signs of the end times? Yeah? Don't be so quick to answer because you know I always set you up when I ask you questions like that. Do you think we're seeing signs of the last? I think it's a legit question. Uh, There's certainly a lot going on in the world, uh, wars and rumors of wars, a lot of political instability around the world, Uh, technology, wouldn't you agree, technology taking us places we never imagined uh, possible. And the fact is, um, we ask that question, we say like it's a legit question right now, are we living in the end times or are we seeing signs of the last days? Uh, But the fact is, it's always been a legitimate question. Uh, Since man's been around, it's kind of been a legit question. Are we seeing evidence of the end of the world? And in fact, um, probably ramped up in the last uh, 2,000 years since the time of Christ, we've had prophets and preachers and prognosticators, Christian and otherwise, uh, who have uh, predicted the end of the world. I want to give you some examples of this. And and, uh, you can go onto websites and just say, you know, uh, um, uh, a false predictions of the end of the world, search something like that, and you'll get lots of websites, including Britannica.com, that will give you a list of kind of the most prominent predictions that failed. Uh, But let me give you three of these uh, from more recent times. All of these, in fact, uh, in my lifetime, um, in fact, in the time since I've become a believer, all three of these have happened. In May 1980, a televangelist, Pat Robertson, that guy, you guys know them, know him? You probably don't want to confess that you've ever watched him on TV, though, would you? So Pat Robertson, he's the host, founder of the 700 Club, and he alarmed many people in May of 1980 when he informed his 700 Club audience that he knew when the world would end. He knew. In fact, this is a quote, I guarantee you by the end of 1982, there's going to be judgment on the world. Didn't happen. I wonder why people are still watching him. And uh, so that's the first one. Here's a second one. Uh, Edgar Wisenot, maybe you remember this name. Uh, He was a former uh, rocket scientist with NASA, and he became an end times guy. He became famous through his pamphlet called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. And surprisingly, this is still available on Amazon. And you can get it in Kindle, which is crazy. Um, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. And uh, I was super concerned about this one because I was in college at the time. And Cheryl and I were just kind of a a month or so away from getting engaged. And I for sure did not want the rapture to happen before my honeymoon. I was very... (laughs) Was that too much disclosure? Was that... (laughs) Am I being a little too transparent right now? I don't know. I thought about that at the time. I mean, that's what you think about when you're in your 20s. Anyways. So he, he predi- this message is going off the rails very quickly. I can feel it. He predicted that Jesus would return to rapture his church sometime during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah in 1988. That was between September 11th and 13th. The World Bible Society caught on to this. 
They published his booklet. They printed 3.2 million copies of it, sent 200,000 copies to pastors around the United States. And when the September date failed, he updated the time to October 3rd, also fell through. But Wizenot remained undaunted, and this is a quote from him, the evidence is all over the place that it's going to be in a few weeks anyways. And that was uh, 28 years ago. So we're still waiting. Uh, third example, and then we'll get to it. Um, this is the most recent, a guy by the name of Harold Camping. If you've heard this name, uh, Harold Camping predicted the end of the world as many as 12 times um, using biblical numerology, uh, which is so bogus. In 1992, he published a book ominously titled 1994, and it actually had the question mark, that was the title of his book, in which he predicted the end of the world around that year. Uh, his most high-profile prediction, though, was for, and I just noticed this this morning while I was going over this again, this is the anniversary today of his most high-profile prediction, um, May 21st, 2011, and there were all these billboards around the United States uh, predicting this, um, in which he calculated um, May 21st, 2011 to be exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. And when that failed, he declared his math to be off and pushed back the end of the world to October 21st, 2011. And, um, well, he was wrong about that too. And I believe he's now with the Lord and uh, still doesn't know the date. So, <laughs> see, every, every generation, every generation seems intent on trying to figure this out. And what it results in is people just making a lot of speculative claims. They're, they're speculating all over the place about the details of the end times. Now, this is what Jesus said about it. Ready? Not from Luke's gospel, but from Mark's gospel. Chapter 13, verse 32. Jesus said, concerning that day or that hour. And he's talking about his return. I don't know how Pat Robertson missed this. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And he goes on to say, not even the angels in heaven, and then most shockingly, not even the Son, but only the Father knows the day of Jesus' return. And yet the Bible has so much to say about the end. And so while we don't want to speculate about it all, we do want to be aware of what the Bible teaches we want to be familiarized and educated and know about it without all the trappings of the speculation. And so with all of the speculation about the coming of Jesus, listen, what can we know for sure? That's what this message is about. And it comes from Luke 17, 20 through to the end of the chapter. And so let me read that now and then we'll pray. And together, so Luke 17, 20, uh, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, uh, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. And I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All right, with a picture of vultures in our mind, let's turn to prayer for a moment. Father, we are grateful to be together and to have your word in front of us. And we don't need to wonder about your will. We don't need to wonder about your ways because you've already revealed these things to us. And we would ask only that you would speak now through me, through your frail servant. Help us all to hear, to believe, and to act on these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's uh, get to this. With all of the speculation about the coming of Jesus, what can you know for sure? First, it will come with no advanced warning, so be focused. It will come with no advanced warning. Warning, and we need to be focused on the things that Christ has put in front of us to be focused on. Now, the religious leaders in verse 20, they ask him a question, again, about the nature of God. This is an ongoing dialogue that's been happening throughout the gospel, and sometimes they're trying to trip him up, and in this case, it seems like there's just genuine inquiry about the kingdom of God, and they were certainly very interested in this because, listen, they were under Roman occupation, Roman rule. They didn't have their own governance structure. They didn't have an independent country, and that's really the things that the Jewish people longed to have, that their own Messiah king would be sitting on the throne of Israel, and that Roman rule would not, uh, no longer be over them. So that's what they're wondering about. Jesus is talking about the kingdom, and he's sounding in some ways like the Messiah, so they're wondering, what's the nature of this kingdom? Is it coming? What's it going to look like? And Jesus said to them, notice verse, the latter part of verse 20 now, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not, it's not coming in the way that you think it's going to come. What they're thinking again is a physical, on earth, overthrowing of the Romans to have an earthly Jewish ruler over them. That's what's in their mind. Jesus said it's not anything like that. You're not going to see it in that way. And it's not about the precise details and the dates and all of the things that you think it's about. It's not about, and he goes on to say here, it's not, look, look, here it is, or there. It's not specific in that way at all. It just isn't what you think it is. Verse 21, for behold, look what he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In essence, it's right here. It's right now. 
And he's pointing, of course, to himself as the embodiment of the kingdom of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one bringing the message about the kingdom. He's bringing salvation to the world. That's the kingdom of God. And he's saying it's already here. It's, and we've talked about the kingdom of God in this way, and this is such an important phrase throughout this message, throughout Luke's gospel, throughout the Bible. It's the now but not yet Now but not yet. And he's talking right in this moment about the now part of the kingdom of God. It's inaugurated. It's come. It's in the midst of us. It's embodied in Jesus Christ. It's already here. But there's more to come. Then he says this in verse 22. He said to his disciples, and he turns now, the Pharisees have asked the question, the religious leaders. Now he's going to talk to his followers. He's going to talk directly to us And he says this, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. You're gonna desire to see the not yet part. You're gonna desire to see something that's that's still future for you. Now, this is a real-time conversation between Jesus and his immediate followers who still don't know the whole story. They're seeing kind of the early days of the now part of the kingdom, but there's so much they haven't seen yet, including... They have not yet seen the crucifixion. They have not yet seen the resurrection. They don't uh, know anything about the ascension. They don't know all of that part of the kingdom of God that you and I know. And so he's saying to them, the days are coming. You're going to desire to see the coming of the kingdom in more of its fullness. And he says to them, in essence, you're not going to see it. You're not going to see that coming of Jesus that you and I are waiting for. He's telling them that they personally, the 12 apostles, the other followers in that particular generation are not going to see his return or his coming. And what he wants from them more than anything else is for their focus to be on the thing he's going to give them to do. This could be so important for us to remember as well. He wants their focus to be on the mission. And and he's going to give them that mission much later. In fact, if we were to fast forward over to chapter 24, right at the end, after the resurrection, but just before the ascension of Jesus to the throne of God, in Luke 24, 47 and 48, he says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. After everything happens now, they've seen it all. They've witnessed it all. They have the message. They now embody the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying to them, I need you to go out and to tell the entire world about this message of the kingdom of God. And listen, listen, our focus needs to be on the exact same thing. That's what Jesus has given us to do. Not just that immediate generation, but Until he returns, we must be about the business of communicating the kingdom of God to this world. Now, having said all of that, we know that it's going to come with no advance warning, and we need to be focused on it. But if there was any advance warning, if there are any things that we need to be aware of from the scriptures about the end times, then we should know them. So I just... In synopsis, without being able to go into a lengthy um, explanation of everything related to the end times, here's, here's a little clarity on what we believe concerning the end times. I'm going to give you what we believe concerning the end times, three key points. Uh, this would also be called the study of eschatology. So I'm going to give you three basic points about it. First of all, this, and I 
really believe, even though there's differences of opinion amongst those, different interpretations of the end times or different approaches to it, I believe that everyone can agree to this first one, no matter where you're coming from on it. The first one is this. Jesus is coming back to culminate history, judge the living and the dead, usher in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe everyone can assent to that. In other words, he's coming to unleash the full expression of the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus is coming back. History will come to an end. I, I believe we can all assent to that. Now this second one, not so much, but this is what we would teach. There are good people who believe the word of God who wouldn't believe precisely what I'm gonna say next, but this is the approach to the scriptures that we would take and to the end times. There will be a taking of believers away from the earth, what some have called the rapture, though that, that word does not appear in the scriptures. We're gonna see a hint of that even in this passage. There will be a taking of believers away from the earth, a tribulation period, and a millennial reign of Christ before a final judgment. Now here's what I'll say about that because it kind of lays out a little bit of a timeline uh, but some of us here, again, because the backgrounds uh, in our church are so diverse, uh, we have people who came from a lot of different church backgrounds, and some of you would have been from, say, Pentecostal, um, Baptist, or Brethren backgrounds where premillennialism was taught. And in fact, you might have had end times conferences or, or prophecy conferences where a teacher would get up and he would have a wall chart at the front of the room. How many people remember this? How many people just raise your hand? And the wall chart would lay out in very precise details all the different events going on right up until the coming of Jesus and the uh, final judgments and the great white throne judgment and the creation of the new heavens, new earth, the descent of New Jerusalem, all of that. It would lay out in precise detail all of that. Now, some of you don't have that background. You never saw those wall charts. But what I'm gonna say is that it's so difficult, the exact layout and details are not clear enough in the scriptures for us to actually put these on a wall chart. But then I decided I think I could actually come up with a wall chart of my own. And so here's my wall chart, ready for this? This is the most accurate end times wall chart ever, okay? There was a creation and man fell. And then notice, a lot of things happened. <laughs> and then Jesus came, and then a lot of things are happening, and then Jesus comes back, and then eternity. Thank you. I worked on that for about five minutes. Actually, it's come through a lifetime of studying these things and just being frustrated with the wedging in of details that are speculative and, and not based on the clarity of scripture. And uh, one of the challenges that we have in the apocalyptic sections of the Bible is this, that we see scriptures, and you can read this in Isaiah or in the book of Revelation or in Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah. We, we see things that when we're reading it, we're going, I think that's already fulfilled. I think that already happened. And we see things that are being fulfilled. I think that's being fulfilled. I, th I think this is future. This sounds like that hasn't happened yet. Or we see something that's partially fulfilled but not completely fulfilled. And if you're reading the sections and you're thinking that, you're going, I don't know what's going on. It just seems like some of it's done and some of it's not. I just want you to know that you're reading the scriptures correctly if you're feeling that. Because it's exactly what's happening in the apocalyptic literature. You can't necessarily tell what has already been fulfilled, what is not, what is partially fulfilled, and what is coming. What is being fulfilled in the immediate? That's exactly 
the overwhelming nature of the apocalyptic literature. In fact, uh, my, uh, one of my professors at college would describe it this way, that if the, when you're reading the apocalyptic literature, when you're reading the book of Revelation, if it doesn't feel like a wave of the ocean has just swept over you and overwhelmed you, you haven't read it right. Because that's exactly what should be happening in those moments. It's difficult to discern uh, what is what and when it's all gonna happen And so we need to stop the speculation and focus on what we know from the scriptures. That make sense? All right, let's uh, talk about a third point here, what we believe concerning the end times. Uh, There has only ever been, this is so important for reading the scriptures, there has only ever been one covenant people of God made up of all true believers throughout history. So what this means is that the church is not Israel and Israel is not the church. We have various covenants that we read about in the scriptures. We see God establishing the way he's going to relate to his people through these various covenants that we see in the scriptures. Various expressions of how God was relating to the one people of God at different parts in history. We have from creation to Abraham where we have believers, people who loved and worshipped and served God, but they were not Jewish Not before Abraham they weren't, but they were believers. They were the people of God. From Abraham and and the establishment of circumcision, you now have the Jewish people straight through to the time of Christ when it's very clear that God is now working in a very different way with his people and that Israel, in fact, is set aside for a season and now God is working through something he calls the church. A time will come when God will then work through the millennial period and reestablish a relationship with the people of Israel, a new way of working and relating to people. All of the covenants that we see in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, the Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic Covenants, all established how God worked at the time, all gave us a little bit of a piece of the puzzle, and all of them pointed to the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. One people of God, one kingdom of God to which we all belong, being revealed in the now with, with, with parts of it being not yet, And as part of this, it's important to say, because now we begin to ask the question, well, what about Israel? How's that all going to play out? And we're also enamored, many of us enamored by the nation of Israel. And I would just say this, that there is an obvious future regathering of the Jewish people. And I want you to think about the Jewish people and not necessarily the nation state, the modern nation state of Israel. But the Jewish people who dwell really around the world And if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you'll see very clearly how God will be regathering the Jewish people to himself into the one people of God. Those are three very important things to believe about the end times. And believing these three things will not lead you to obsess over the details, but should compel you and drive you to remain focused on the actual ministry and mission that we've given. In fact, here's the warning that Jesus gives about this. Don't follow people and don't lead, uh, don't, don't uh, listen, don't follow people, don't listen to teaching that tells you 
Look at verse 23. Look there or look here. Don't follow them. Don't go out to them. Don't listen to that kind of teaching. It's bogus. Focus instead on what Jesus gave us to do. And in Luke's gospel, remember Luke is writing this entire gospel. We're not studying any of these passages in isolation. All of them relate to everything else that Luke has written here, everything that Jesus is saying. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, and he's telling Theophilus, this is the nature of the kingdom of God. I'm trying to teach you and disciple you and help you understand this. And so back in chapter 12, what did Jesus give us to do? Jesus said, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be faithful with what I've entrusted to you right now. Don't worry so much about the details in the future. Yes, I'm coming back. That's super important. Yes, there's parts of the kingdom that have not been revealed. Learn those things, but don't obsess over them. Focus on what's been entrusted to you now. Luke chapter 10 the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray that more laborers, laborers will be sent out into the harvest. Get out there and tell people about the kingdom of God. That's the mission. That should be our focus. Walking with Jesus is our focus. Living for him is our focus, not speculation about his coming. Think I've pounded that nail enough? Time for the next one? All in favor? All right, here we go. Something else that we can know for sure, it will be unmistakably obvious. So be at peace. Do you know there are some people who think that they're going to somehow miss the coming of Jesus? In fact, this was a problem at the time that Luke was writing his gospel, because at the time, many Christians believed that Jesus had already come. In fact, the Apostle Paul had to deal with that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus already came? No, he did not, Paul assures them. And, and some of them actually believed at the time of Luke's writing that Jesus had, 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 um, wasn't coming at all. And Peter addresses this in 2 Peter chapter 3. And there are some people today who think they're somehow going to miss Jesus coming and we just need to not worry about this at all because I know that CNN will let us know. <laughs> and if CNN decides that the coming of Jesus is too religious for them, for sure Fox News will carry it. And if you don't have cable or Twitter or the internet, I don't know what to tell you. Actually, I do know what to tell you. Uh, the coming of Jesus will be unmistakably obvious. No one's going to miss it. No one's going to miss it. So be at peace. Look what he says in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And I think about lightning, and we have this, this photograph from uh, this, the city of Barrie, and a local photographer captured this amazing shot of lightning streaking literally horizontally across the horizon and lighting up the city of Barrie. And there's so many things we could say about lightning and how that relates to the coming of Jesus. You know, it happens suddenly, it happens unexpectedly, you can't predict where it's going to start or strike. It's so quick. But the point of what Jesus is really saying here is that it, it, it lights everything up. When lightning like this happens, it, it, it makes night as the day. And when Jesus comes, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be like that. Everyone's going to see it, and, and then the light is going to shine in the midst of everyone's life. When Jesus comes, it's going to be unmistakably obvious. You don't have to worry for a second whether you're a believer or unbeliever. Don't worry for a second that you're going to miss it. 
true at his first advent, it was a little quieter. He said, well, the first time Jesus came, you know, a lot of people missed it. It was basically an undercover operation. It was very covert. We sing at Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And not everyone saw it. Jesus didn't come in his full glory the first time, but his return, it's more of a, hey, fasten your seatbelts, boys and girls, we're going on a ride. That's really what it's like when Jesus comes back. It's this flash of lightning. It lights everything up. And in fact, if you want the precise word on it from, from what the apostle John says in the Revelation, Revelation 1-7, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. And he added this other illustration to further make his point. It's right at the very end of the passage, verse 37. They asked the question. They said to him, where, Lord? And again, he's telling them, don't ask this question. It's not about where and when. They hear everything he says, and yet they're still like, you know, it's like the kid who comes to mom, can I have a cookie? And you say, you know, you're not having a cookie. It's almost supper time. You're not having a cookie. I know, mom, but can I have a cookie? It's exactly what's happening here. You just told them they can't have a cookie, but they want a cookie. This is the disciples. Don't ask where and when. Yeah, I know, but, but, but where? Jesus is so patient with them after everything he says. They still don't get it. They're looking for the location and timing of the kingdom of God. So he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a bit odd. But I think we can understand that pretty quickly here with a couple of pictures. This, first of all, is a, that's a vulture, pretty ugly bird. And when this happens, what does that mean? Okay, something's dying down below. They're just waiting for it to die, right? We all know that. And in fact, there they are on the ground, munching on the corpse, the carcass of whatever was dying. And, and see, just as the circling vultures, we all knew it. Just as the circling vultures are unmistakably pointing to the obvious presence of a corpse, so the coming of Jesus is unmistakably obvious. That's all he's saying with that. You can't miss it. Now, he did say to his hearers at the time, now back to verse 25, he said, but first he, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation there are some things that, that had to happen first. Again, from their perspective, none of this had happened yet. But he needed to preach his message, and that message, in essence, needed to be rejected by that generation, and it was. He needed to be arrested. He needed to be tried. He needed to be condemned. He needed to be beaten and scourged. He needed to be shamed. He needed to be nailed to the cross. He needed to die on that cross and be buried. All of that had to happen. He must, the verse says, he must suffer many things. And all of that suffering is what makes the kingdom of God possible for you and I. It's the foundation for everything else. It's the essence of the kingdom. It's the embodiment of the kingdom in the passion of Jesus Christ. And we know that because he did all of that, Ephesians 2 actually says that he himself is our peace, and because he did that, 
He's coming back for us and we can be at peace with all of it because he is our peace. It's an awesome thing to think about. It will be unmistakably obvious, be at peace. Ready for another? Another sure thing here is they will catch many off guard. Uh, be ready. So in verses 26 through 29, we read these uh, earlier. Jesus gives two examples of uh, people being caught off guard. Uh, he uses the days of Noah and he uses the days of Lot. And then he, he says this in verse 30, notice, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man revealed what happened to the people in Noah's day, what happened to the people in Lot's day. That's gonna happen when, when, the, when the Son of Man arrives, when Jesus comes back, that's gonna happen. People are gonna be caught off guard. Just because we're not obsessing with the details does not mean we shouldn't be ready. We must, in fact, be ready or we make a grave error. Now thinking about the times of Noah and the times of Lot, because we want to draw the full principle off of this and get the lesson that God has for us, it's not so much about the evil of those days, though that is well documented in both of the Old Testament accounts. We know that there was evil in the days of Noah. We know that there was evil in the days of Lot. I'm not sure that they were any more evil than we are today, but it's noted there, and they were judged for it. But the main point is this, that the people were carrying on with their lives as if nothing else mattered, as if nothing in their lives was ever going to change. They were planting their fields, they were reaping their crops, they were taking the profits, they were spending the money, they were building houses, they were getting married, they were having children, they were spending time with friends, they had leisure activities, they played. In essence, they had very good lives. They lived in a prosperous way. They were essentially happy people with the lives that they were living. And I think, I think about that, I just, that's, that's here, that's now. That's the lives that our neighbors, friends and families are living. Everyone's so busy with life that they don't want to even consider God. They don't want to think about religion. They don't want to think about faith. They don't ever read the Bible because it's not even really on their radar. Several weeks ago, I don't know, five, six, seven weeks ago, uh, we had a meeting uh, with our staff team um, and we were brainstorming about the grand opening of our new building in September and we were thinking about all the different ways we could celebrate that and we've come up with some really great ideas and then we were thinking about all the different ways that we could promote the grand opening in the community. And uh, we had a really long list of all the different ways. It was a brainstorming session, so nothing was off the table. And one of the things that we had written down there, of course, was billboards around the city. You see these big billboards everywhere, highway signs, and they're all over the city. And we thought, well, we'll just get a few of those to advertise it. And then I kind of thought about it a little more, and I just went, you know, I just, I just don't think like that's a good idea. It's not something we should really pursue. So we axed that one off the list. And then, I don't know, it was a few days later, maybe a week later, I got an um, email, an article link from uh, Pastor Dan, and, and um, it was essentially this, and it talked about billboards in the article, but, but it said the reason why churches shouldn't do billboards is because, and here's the quote from the article, no one cares about your church. No one cares about your church. No one in this city who's reading a billboard is like, oh, look at that, a billboard about a church. I must go there. No one's thinking that their life is so bad that they gotta get to church. 
No matter what you put on the billboard, they're not thinking about it. It's not on their radar. It's just white noise to them, just another advertisement for something that's irrelevant to them. Because the fact is, most of your neighbors, friends, and family are living pretty good lives. They have jobs, they have nice homes and nice neighborhoods, they have good friends, they go out and they have fun together, their kids are in sports, they go camping on weekends. They're not thinking about church. You know this. They're not thinking about it at all. That's why the coming of Jesus is going to catch so many people off guard. I get that. Harvest is, in a, in a very real way, irrelevant to the vast majority of the residents of this city and this county. That's why personal relationship, by the way, is an aside. Personal relationship is the way that you can invite someone here. They need to see Christ real in someone's life, not just an advertisement on a billboard. Even among Christians, so that's certainly true for those outside the church, they're not going to be ready. But even among Christians, there are those who actually think that Jesus will not return in their lifetime. There's like, yeah, no, I, I get it. I get the teaching. Jesus is coming back, but really, really, not coming back soon. He's not coming back in my lifetime. And in some ways, you know, that's fine if you want to believe that, if you, if you really, have, as long as you're still engaged in the mission, as long as you're still like passionate about living for him and being holy and reading the scriptures and, and, and living the way he wants you to live, if you're, if you're in that category, but you're kind of like resigned to the fact that he's probably not coming back in your lifetime, that's fine. The problem comes when you don't believe he's coming back in your lifetime, so you're just kind of complacent about the Christian life, and you think sometime around the end of your life, you'll just cash in a little bit and talk to him about it and work the whole thing out just before you, just before you pass. That's, that's dangerous, isn't it? Because, because we all know that life is so tenuous, and we all know that we're just a heartbeat or a breath away from Jesus, seeing Jesus face to face, don't we? I mean, I mean, none of us really knows if we have another day on this planet. And so, so in essence, you know, you might not be thinking that we're really living in the last days in that sense of it, but can I just assure you, you are living in your own last days? So even if it isn't the last days for the world, it's certainly the last days for you. In fact, when, when you first start breathing, when you're first born, you're already in your last days. It's already the end times for you because you don't know when it's coming. We need to be ready. We need to not let this catch us off guard. In a heartbeat, any of us could be taken. In a moment, we could be in eternity, face to face with Jesus. So believe that Jesus can return at any time and be ready to personally meet him. He may not come back in our lifetime, but for sure, we're seeing him in our lifetime. Don't be caught off guard. Be ready for that. All right, the last one. Finally, you can know this for sure. It will expose what your heart values. Be holy. Now look first at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding together. One will be taken, one will be left. This is the, this is the not yet part of the now but not yet 
understanding of the kingdom of God. This is still a prophetic word, something we're waiting for. When the time comes, one's gonna be taken, the other's gonna be left, and let me assure you, you wanna be taken. You don't wanna be left. Walter Liefeld, one of the commentators that I'm reading for this series, said, the apocalyptic moment reveals ultimate destinies. The apocalyptic moment, when Jesus returns, reveals ultimate destinies. One is taken, one is left. That's your ultimate destiny. And you want to be taken to be with him forever. Some are taken, some are not. Some skip, skip judgment, some are left to face it. And the question is who? Who faces the judgment? Are you curious about that? Who faces it? You see, it's not in this passage, it's not people who are like the rank pagans, the obvious sinners, the people who have rejected the message of Christ, people who have turned their backs to God. It's not those people, not in this passage. That's not who Jesus is interested in. For sure, they're gonna face the judgment. But he's not talking about scorners here. Verse 31 he says to them, do not come down from the housetop, take away your goods from your house. This whole image of standing on the rooftop terrace, the way homes were made in the first century, there was a terrace on top of a square, a flat roof and a terrace up there, space that they would use. The picture here is of a person who's actually standing on the rooftop, symbolic, metaphoric of, of, of them watching for Jesus to come back. In other words, the testimony of their life, the decision that they've made is, I'm gonna watch for Jesus to come back. But then when he comes back, notice what it says, that they're actually so enamored by what they have downstairs in their house, the possessions, the life that they have, that when he comes back, they kind of turn back and think about, but what about all my stuff? I wanna take this with me too. Am I going to have to leave all this behind? And it reveals that their heart is not really for Jesus. Because if your heart is for Jesus, there's nothing in this world that grips your heart. Only him. Nothing in this world is satisfying except him. There's nothing that you could want that this world provides that he will not give you in greater measure. He illustrates this point by saying, verse 32, remember Lot's wife, remember her. Back in Genesis chapter 19, he tells the story we have in the word of God, the story of Lot and his wife and their two daughters and the city of Sodom, who's, the city is coming under the condemnation of God, he's gonna destroy the city. Lot is a righteous man, and God gives Lot the opportunity to leave. The angel messengers come and, and actually forcibly take Lot and his wife and the two daughters out and keep warning them over and over again as they're leaving. What was the warning? Don't look back. Whatever you do, don't look back. Now, I don't know what happens, and the scriptures don't reveal precisely what happens here, but, but, but Lot's wife looks back. I don't know what she was looking for. I don't know if she was just like rubbernecking like on the highway. She just had to see the accident. Was she just like, I've never seen a city completely destroyed by God. I think that would be cool to look at. What does, what does fire and brimstone actually look like? And did she look back for that reason or did she look back because she was thinking about everything she had left behind? See, that's the point of the passage here, isn't it? 
The guy on his rooftop is thinking about what's downstairs in his house. And Lot's wife is looking back with longing at the life she was leaving behind over the possessions, over the relationships, over life in Sodom. It was all being left behind. She was one of only four who were saved and she couldn't keep herself from looking back. She was thumbing her nose at the life and salvation that God was giving her and she died on the spot. Her heart valued the wrong things and God calls us to be holy. And at the core of what it means to be holy is that we would cherish God, that we would cherish Christ more than anything else. That we would, we would love him more than anything else. That nothing in this world would grip our hearts like Jesus in thoughts of his kingdom. Because the apocalyptic moment reveals ultimate destinies. Either you love him or you don't. Either you're holy or you're not. And then Jesus gives them a proverb similar to the one that we've heard before in Luke 9, 24. Whoever, look at verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, and by that he means whoever surrenders their life to follow Christ, whoever gives their life to be his, will keep it. That's the awesome assurance that we have from Christ. And so the question that I have to ask in this moment is simply this. Have you committed your life to Christ in that way? To follow him, to faithfully serve him, to watchfully wait for him. He's coming for you to take you home to be with him. We need to end the speculation about the last days and the end times and the coming of Jesus. And we need to rest in the things that we can know for sure. Amen? Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.